Welcome to the War Room. Ryan Ray here reminding you that this show is listener supported at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for the free option, but if you want to support the show, that is where you do it. And oh, by the way, we will be rolling out YouTube episodes, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Again, warroommedia.com is where you stay up to date with everything, communicate with me, see all of the past episodes, warroommedia.com. Now, let's get to the show. Jason, welcome to the War Room. Uh, Ryan, honored to be here, man. Okay, man. Well, you... It's been a few years since I've been in a war room. <laughs> you know, it's funny because the name gets a lot of attention, and I, I didn't actually... When I thought of the name, I thought of a of a room where people come, they can have kind of tough conversations, and you know, it's it's just it's a spot to, to to just obviously not strategize, but it's to discuss and have frank conversations. And so, um, some people kind of get un- understand that moniker, but other people are like, "Hey, so are you like a military historian?" I'm like, "No, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's not a military show. We have a military guest, of course, but it's not a military show." And so, it's been funny to hear people react to it. Of course, when I talk to people like yourself, they have a, a a certain perspective of, of what the name might mean. And so, um, room where we plan. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's get into it. Obviously you have a very distinguished and long history. Um, maybe unpack kind of how you got into rooms where you plan war. Yeah, I grew up a, um, I grew up in a family that service was a part of who we were. Um, I grew up with stories of both grandfathers served in World War II. Uh, my, my, my dad's father was a B-24 pilot in uh, Europe, in the European theater during World War II. Very decorated. Um, actually uh, was shot down and crash landed uh, in Yugoslavia and managed to survive. The whole crew survived and they evaded back to uh, friendly lines. And he was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for that specific mission. And then I think he earned seven more air medals during the war. So these were the stories I grew up with. And I was like, you know, this is what I want to do from a very young age. Um, Actually wanted to follow in the footsteps of my grandfather and be a pilot until um, I was probably about 12 years old and um, G.I. Joe was popular. Uh, I love the special operations guys, Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow and all these guys for anybody out there that's part of that generation. Um, and, and I kind of shifted my focus and said, that's what I wanted to do. And when I was about 14 years old, my dad had been in the Army also. He'd been an airborne um, he, he was a paratrooper and then he became an airborne instructor, a rigger. And, um, a lot of people don't realize that up all the way up until almost, um, around nine 11, a little after seals went through army airborne school. I, I did also, um, later in my career, but my dad had crossed paths with Navy SEALs uh, because they had gone through the training. And he told me when I was about 14 years old, he said, you should look into this group of guys. You know, the Navy has them, elite special operations. I was a pretty good swimmer. So he said, this may be something you want to do. And when I looked into it, I, I just, I was hooked. I said, that's what I want to do and set my sights on that and, you know, ended up going down that path. For someone who had the mentality that they always want to be in the military, um, what were maybe some of the things that you got in? You're like, okay, this is better than I expected. And then this is worse than I expected. 
Oh, that's a great question. The um, better than I expected. Um, well, let's go with worse than what I expected. The military oftentimes, you know, especially special operations, people watch the movies and um, they think it's this insanely high paced, high action all the time. And some truth, but the reality is there's a lot of time that you're training. There's a lot of time. I often joke, there's a lot of time you're moving gear and you're moving um, equipment. You're, you're prepping between, there's a lot of prep work that goes into skydiving operations. There's a lot of prep work that goes into whatever you're doing. So oftentimes it's days of prep. And if you give the example of jumping a boat out of a plane, there's days of preparation for about maybe five minutes of excitement. Um, and oftentimes you saw a lot of that. You also had to, there was a lot of waiting around in the military, um, which is a big part. So I will say that is something that I didn't expect as a young man. I thought, you know, it's nothing but high speed action all the time. And that's probably not necessarily the case. I also, you know, everybody thinks that special operations has this unlimited budget. And there was a point later in my career where that was true. Uh, but when I came in in the early 90s, we were at a time that the military was downsizing and uh, budgets were cut. And I couldn't believe when I got to my first SEAL team that, don't get me wrong, we had some decent gear, but we had to go out and buy a lot of gear. Um, and that was kind of a disappointment and, and a shock. Now, fast forward, you know, talking about what's better after 9-11, there was a lot of funding, obviously, for special operations. So the military special operations community got access to probably any of the best gear out there. In addition, because of the demand on special operations, our buildings and structures all got upgraded during that time. So if you look at where special operations now is, specifically the SEAL teams, uh, I went back recently to a friend of mine's um, uh, military ceremony that I attended and the SEAL teams are everything that you would ever dream of that Hollywood could create. So that's where it's gotten better over time. You know, obviously the American people and the military machine has invested in uh, our special operations forces. Mm. And so what year did you say you, you enlisted? 92. 92. Okay. So yeah, what was it like that period? Uh, we've had on um, some some you know some, some CCI folks and stuff that have kind of talked about the Bin Laden, the pre Bin Laden or pre nine eleven Bin Laden stage. Um, Rick Prado, that's who I'm thinking of. Um, but what was it like to be a SEAL operator from the average citizen standpoint, where it's relatively a peace time? There are some conflicts, obviously, in the nineties, uh, but but you know ninety three, ninety four, ninety five, ninety six. You know, not a ton of global uh, arrests. So, so, so what was it like? Uh, there, excuse me. There was a lot of training and very few real world operations. Uh, probably within a given year, maybe one SEAL platoon a year would get to do something for real. And it may be some sort of uh, in extremis operation. I know there are things called non-combatant evacuation operations where within a country, if the country was to suddenly implode into a dangerous situation for whatever it is, and America decides, hey, XYZ country has gotten so dangerous, it's dangerous for the American citizens. And what they will do is they will do a recall on this, say all American citizens need to you know, get out of this country. 
And then the last thing they do if things are really imploding is uh, is evacuate the embassy and the last remaining people. So frequently it's military unit that's called a non-combatant evacuation operation. So I knew guys that got involved in things like that. Um, but it was very infrequent. So uh, I write about this in my book. I think all SEALs were, in my time frame pre 9-11, we all were war chasing. So basically, you would look at where are the hot spots in the world and where is the chance something may happen. And you would, you know, you would specifically go to a team based on that, hoping that something would implode and you'd be one of the lucky few that hit the lottery and got to do something real world. Um, what did that bring with it? It brought with it oftentimes a level of frustration mm -hmm. because you would train at this absolute highest level. And I often equate it to it's like being on an NFL mm -hmm. team and you know you have the ability to play in the NFL, but you're never allowed to play mm -hmm. a game. So you just continue to train and practice and you watch the other teams, but you're not able to play. So Obviously, 9-11 changed all that. All yeah, of that. I heard Jocko um, one time talking about, um, I don't want to misquote him because it's been, it's been a while, but he was talking about this idea of how hard SEALs training is, right? Uh, you know, the boot camp and the buds and, and all, the, all the hell week and all that stuff. And, and he was saying, well, compared to combat, it, it's not much. But I wonder if the lore of the of the training grew to be what it was because there wasn't really a lot of SEAL operations going on for a long, long period of time. So kind of that was... That was the thing to talk about was how hard it was the, the training in the course of the post 9-11 world. Um, you know, obviously there's a lot more combat going on. And so I wonder if that's why the lore around going to sale, seal, SEALs boot camp was um, grew to be what it was. I, I don't think so, because the heart of SEAL training has stayed the same all the way back. I mean, so our forefathers uh, were called the Scouts and Raiders. These were the individuals who swam across the beaches at Normandy in the Pacific Theater. Um, that's how the name Frogmen came about, uh, or the Naked Warriors, if you will. And that training happened in Fort Pierce, Florida, which is now the home of the Navy, the National Navy SEAL UDT Museum. Uh, if you ever get a chance, they've done an amazing job. It's the most incredible museum. And that's where training started. And really, the heart of training is still almost the same to this day. Now, obviously it's been adapted and there are certain things we no longer do hydrographic reconnaissance anymore because we don't need to because of technology. Um, but the way we run training is still the same. And then after you get out of BUDS and you get into um, advanced training or into platoon or assault troop type training, that still is incredibly hard. And I will say that I think you know, I went through ranger school. I went to other military schools. I think the way that SEALs train, we train to make it as difficult as possible. And we try to think of the absolute worst case scenario we ever can think of. And then we even try and ramp that up a little more. And it makes uh, training very, very difficult. The good news in that is 80% of the time in combat, it's usually combat is less stressful than actual training. Uh, now, granted, there's a 20% factor when everything goes mm -hmm. wrong and now you're having to rely on, you know, the grit, the overcome mindset and the things that you've built into yourself. But most of the time, training's designed to be unequivocally hard because it is, because we know that formula works to make good warriors on the battlefield. Why does someone make it through 
And why does someone fail? Now, obviously, there's injuries, so we're gonna put that aside. But, but what, like, from your experience, like, what, what, what is it that, that, that someone like yourself has that was it like ninety percent of the class doesn't have? I, I would say for um, for a lot of individuals. So, I think there are there. Are, so the, the the question of why do people make it through? Um, I think it's a combination of two things. I think genetically individuals who have the ability to endure pain or discomfort or um, things that are unfair better than the average person, those are the guys that make it through training. Um, I think some of that is a little bit genetic um, because I'll tell you, for me, I think there's just a little bit of genetic in there. I mean, I wasn't raised in this incredibly hard family. I wasn't raised in an environment that forged me into this hard kid. I mean, I was a, I was kind of a runt and a 90 pound weakling until right up about the point that I decided I wanted to be a seal. Um, and the other part of that I think is learned you by doing hard things, by training hard, you can build yourself to be able to endure more pain and discomfort over time, which is a big thing that I often speak about how you build an overcome mindset. But it's interesting. We frequently have great athletes, like phenomenal athletes that come to SEAL training and they don't make it. And I often think a lot of that has to do with they're so genetically gifted that they, when they were playing sports, it was relatively mm-hmm. easy. They, they were genetically gifted enough that they were naturally strong. They were naturally fast. They were naturally uh, gifted in their ability to evaluate, you know, a football field or a wrestling mat or whatever it is. SEAL training I don't care who, who you are. They will push you out of your comfort zone and they will, they will break you mentally, emotionally, in some ways, physically. And the individuals that have never encountered that don't know what to do with it. That's why frequently you see guys who are just studs uh, don't make it. And you see guys like me who are like a nobody who do make it. Um, not to say that we don't have studs that make it, but we see a lot of studs and, you know, individuals who are star athletes that do not make it through training. Did you ever think about quitting? Absolutely. And if you meet anybody who says they never thought about quitting, they're a liar. <laughs> How close were you? Uh, I So during Hell Week, and Hell Week is the toughest block of training, there was a point where I looked at the bell during an evolution and I thought about quitting. Um, but thankfully, I caught myself. I stopped myself and I said, hey, man, if you quit, this journey's over. I mean, that's it's the one thing you can't come back from. And I, and I tell guys out there, I mean, it's similar to life. Quitting guarantees failure. We can't predict all the other external factors that are out there in life. We don't know what the outcome is going to be. The only thing you can control is you and whether you quit Mm -hmm. or not. So that's what I tell guys through training. Do not quit. Don't ring that bell. And that was my mindset. So I will admit, I thought about it. I was having a hard moment. I had a hard night on Thursday night of hell week and and I did for a few minutes think about, you know, screw this. I don't want to deal with this anymore. So I know you do a lot of speaking. Um, and, and so I'm curious. I want to tackle this from two vantage points. First is you have this um, BUDS process, which is basically baptism by fire, right? They are just throwing everything at you nonstop, little sleep. Um, and then I'm assuming after you graduate, there's a, there's a secondary school you got to go through, I think, maybe a third. I don't know. But at some point you do your regular training. I'm supposing that's more incremental improvements, right? Like, so we're going to work on this. You mentioned taking a boat off a plane. Um, from just an 
a non-SEAL perspective in the real world, what are the pros and cons of getting the baptism by fire versus refining your, your skill set for a very detailed incremental approach? I mean, I am a big fan of baptism by fire. I'm a big fan of action. Um, oftentimes, especially in this day and age, we're living in a day and age when we are absolutely inundated with information. So people who want to take that small incremental approach and they're getting just flooded with information. Uh, and oftentimes what it leads to is they never actually take action and do anything. They never get to the point where they're actually implementing their plan. They're constantly trying to develop their plan and refine their plan and make their plan perfect. And one of the things you learn in the military is there is no perfect plan. Um, so action and just sometimes just diving in, um, there is a balance there. Obviously, we want to plan out a little bit. We want to look at our contingencies. Uh, we want to look at how we're going to manage some of the problems. But at the end of the day, it's, it's taking that action and driving forward. So I, if I had to choose between somebody who is an, an elaborate planner and someone who's an action taker, I'll take that action taker over that planner all day because I can teach the action taker how to plan. It's hard to take the action, the planner and teach them how to be an action taker. Yeah, it's interesting because if you come across people um... – in corporate society, right? They work for a big company. They are very much almost conditioned. I don't know, you know what it was like beforehand, but conditioned to be like very slow, very methodical. And on some level, I get it. It's a huge organization. There's a lot of moving parts. You know, you don't want some guy out there gripping it and ripping it and you know, screwing it up for everybody. However, I would almost die on the vine if I had to, if I had to live that way. And so, um, it's, but, but I also recognize that there's strengths to that approach that, I can see deficits uh, in myself. And so um, it's hard to balance, which is, which is better because I can see people who are very slow and incremental. Like I say, wow, they're, they're actually, if they can stick to it, um, they can accomplish a lot as well. So it's, it's from my, from my perspective, it's, a, it's kind of looking over the fence going, Hmm, I wonder what that's like to be able to actually update your CRM every day or, you know, follow up on all the stuff you're supposed to follow up on. Yeah. And, and oftentimes it's risk, it's risk and fear yeah. of failure. That drives so many people, whether, I mean, in, on the battlefield is no different than in business. I mean, it, it, except the difference in, in business, you're losing money. On battlefield, we're losing mm-hmm. lives and, and very expensive assets. So that risk balance is critical. Obviously, as leaders, it's upon us to, you know, as I got higher in my career that we had to balance it. And I got myself in trouble a couple of times because I immediately took action. Um, when I probably shouldn't have, I should have evaluated more. Um, I think business is the same way, but oftentimes most people, they, they're so risk averse that they're, you know, they never are willing to take action. And, and if you build a, a culture of, Hey, there's a balance in this. And, and I would rather tell my people, I don't care if you fail, um, you know, definitely evaluate what you're doing. You know, don't just rush into this with no plan whatsoever. But at least if you developed a plan, you looked at the risk and then you executed. And if you failed, celebrate that. Uh, The problem is in this day and age, so often companies are quick to get rid of people that failed. Um, You know, if they failed because of malicious intent, I get Mm -hmm. that. But if they failed because they were trying to make something better, they were trying to grow and they had a methodical process on why they did that. That individual is somebody that's going to make your company mm-hmm. better. Um, just because they failed once 
doesn't mean that they'll fail again, but they may. But they're learning. And those are people that are going to take action and make things happen. And we have built a culture of um, people are afraid to yeah. fail. And nothing builds an overcome mindset faster than failing and recovering from it. Well, and the other thing I thought of when you were talking there is you, you might have this big corporate mentality. But with the advent of social media, you can kind of get that 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 spur of the moment. I'm going to go all in with an, with an anonymous account or your private Facebook. And so you can kind of have that feel as if you're doing a lot um, by just you know, putting your voice out into the wind and then you go to work and you get that nine to five. And so almost it might scratch that itch for some where they feel like they've kind of have that um, overly ambitious mentality because they can kind of get their voice heard. Whereas, you know, you know 30 years ago, <laughs> you went, you just plodded along. So we're kind of in a weird spot to where you can get out there and, and do things that appear that give you the appearance of kind of going all in and then go to work and kind of work the nine to five. And obviously I don't have a problem with either side of it. It's just, a, it's an interesting dichotomy we find ourselves in. So when you, when you, you mentioned a minute ago, you, you got money versus lives. Um, and there's, there's a sense in which um, obviously there's the, the, the real the realness of being in battle and, and the, the consequences there. Um, how, how do you, or how did you go about evaluating that? Because, you know, if you make the wrong plan going in, um, you know, if you didn't calculate all the variables, um, is it a trust thing that you had to build amongst a team? We're like, hey, we understand that this is as far as we go. Is it, you know, no, we have a set procedure and we go through the checklist. Like, how do you go through balancing that? Because that could be stifling. Just go, oh my gosh, someone might die if we get this wrong. Uh, it's it's all of the above of those things. So it is definitely a trust factor. You build the trust within the team. You build the credibility and respect within the leaders. Um, I broke that at one point. I mean, that's part of my story that's told in my book, The Trident. I failed as a leader and it damaged that trust and credibility. And it took me years to build that back up. Um, it's also built within the uh, experience level of the team. You know, how much training have we done? How prepared are we to go execute this type of mission? How confident are we in our abilities? Um, so a lot of that comes back to training. Uh, which, in my opinion, is the same in business. It's the same as in a physical, uh, you know, evolution that you're training for. Um, the the um, so trust credibility. The the other part of that comes down to um, um, building a, a a a culture, if you will, that you know we we are going after this, and that needs to happen as a leader. We understand the culture of a. We take risks. We take, you know, big risks for big rewards, but it's all balanced against training. It's balanced against the assets. I frequently meet people that look at special operations. They say, oh, my God, that's such a dangerous job. Well, yeah, but think about this. I frequently saw young National Guard members who were deployed over and over again to Iraq and Afghanistan who were manning a street corner and I'll tell you what, I feel like it was much more dangerous what they were doing, standing on that street corner, totally open. They didn't have the level of training. They didn't have the level of gear. They didn't have the assets we have than what I was doing, which, you know, was, you know, working with amazing individuals, kicking down doors to go after high level individuals. So training, culture, trust, credibility, all these things enabled us to make decisions and say, um, hey, we're, this is what we train to do. And we also acknowledge that, you know, bad things can happen. You know, as long as we've done everything right, we're executing the mission, 
then uh, we accept that those risks can, you know, that, that people can be killed or right. injured. And that's kind of when I got seriously injured, that's how I looked at it. I said, you know what? Part of my job, an unfortunate part of my job, but a part of my job nonetheless. How do you go about regaining the trust of those you've, you've failed or they don't trust you more? Um, how do you go about getting it back? <laughs> so that's everything I speak on. I mean, so leadership, you know, it's interesting. So many people um, are afraid of failure. They want to hide from failure and they want to quit after they failed. And I'll be honest, I went through all those things. Um, I thought about leaving the SEAL teams after I failed. But thankfully, I had a phenomenal leader and mentor. I had two great leaders. One gave me a second chance and said, Red, I believe mm -hmm. in you. You're a good leader. He said, you're arrogant, you're immature, you're impulsive. Uh, we need to humble you. He said, so I'm going to give you a second chance. So that was one. The second one was a great leader, probably one of the best leaders in the SEAL teams who was also a mentor of mine. And I remember telling him, hey, I, 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 it's too late. I don't think I can come back from the mistakes I made. I don't think the guys will ever follow me again. And what he told me has become the foundation of a lot of what I teach in leadership now, many years later. He said to me, Red, people will follow you if you give them a reason to. That's the essence of leadership. He said, I don't care how bad you've messed up. As humans, we will follow success. If you are successful consistently, not just a flash in the pan success, but consistently over time, people are going to follow you because humans follow success. We want to emulate success. We want to achieve success. And, and he said to me, Red, just come back. Go crush Ranger School come back to the SEAL teams and give the guys a reason to follow you. And that comes down to, it comes down to attitude. It comes down to how do you lead yourself? It comes down to goal setting and goal accomplishment. It comes down to structure and discipline in your life. It comes down to positivity in the face of negativity. All these things enable other people to say, I want to follow that. Individual. It's interesting because you wouldn't, you know, as a, as a, someone who's never served in the military, I wouldn't say, Hey, Navy SEALs are followers too. But it's just something about human society where we, we kind of do have people that lead, people that follow. Um, but is there a different dynamic inside of a SEAL team to where um, it's more of a, a, a round table or is there kind of a hierarchy? I mean, I know there's um, from a ranking standpoint, but, but practically speaking, is it more of a, a round table or is there a hierarchy and, and people look to like, oh, no, this is the guy? So so leadership and followership, you're 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 one and the same all the time which is kind of people have a hard time wrapping their head around that at any moment I may need to step up and lead, but at any moment I need to sit back and follow because somebody else is stepping up and leading in that moment, just because you are a leader, because you have the title of leader. This is a problem that many leaders get themselves into. And I made this mistake also. Oh, well, I'm the leader, so I must lead at all times, but you have amazing subject matter experts within your team. One of the things in the SEAL teams, we build a culture of leadership. Uh, the SEAL ethos, one of the tenets is in the absence of leadership, I will step up and lead. We encourage people to lead at all times. So even though I might have been an officer in the SEAL teams, I had guys who were subject matter experts as breachers, meaning they were trained with explosives and how to get indoors. I had subject matter experts as snipers, as communicators. I didn't need to step up and do their job or even tell people what needed to happen because at that point they were leading. They were the ones that would say, hey, LT, this is what we're doing. This is how we're going through that door. So at that point, I'm a follower. You know, ultimately, 
So this is where that, and, and you have to build a culture of that within a company, within a team, because if you're the leader who always says, oh, I'm the leader, I have to be in charge, you're going to create a team of people who are unwilling to take initiative and step up and say, this is what we need to do, even though they may be the subject matter experts. And, and if you want efficiency, if you want speed in a company uh, or in a team, man, make sure you convince every single person that uh, is on your team that they are a leader. It's one of the things that when I go in and speak for companies, I love doing this exercise. I, I say, hey, if you're a leader in this company, stand up. And of course, everybody who has a title stands mm -hmm. up and they're all, yes, I'm a leader. They peacock and preen. And I'm like, the reality is every single person in this room should be standing up. And if you build a company that everybody is a leader, that's why the SEAL teams are so effective on the battlefield. Because at any moment in time, uh, leaders can be removed. Leaders can be shot. Leaders can die. Leaders can be incapacitated. Leaders can be tied up doing something else. So everyone else has to constantly have a mindset of leadership at all times. How do you go about putting behind major gaffes, not personally, but uh, maybe that's a guess. Um, um, traumatic things. Um, you know, you mentioned leaders can be shot, teammates can be shot. So you, you're in an environment where people can die. That also happens in the real world. People die, people get fired. But how do you go about um, the paying a proper respect and then moving forward um, to the next task in front of you? Um, I. I... There was a saying on one of the walls in the SEAL teams, our memorial wall, and I can't remember. It was something about, oh, wise warrior, do not mourn me because I am gone, but instead live greatly, you know, in, in my honor or something along those lines. And I think, you know, you have to, this life, you, you got to live for today. I talk to people about this all the time. We never know when your time is coming. And I'll tell you what, when you're in the military and you do a dangerous job, your, your, your risk may be a little higher or may not, may not be. I mean, it doesn't really matter. I believe, I believe our days are numbered no matter what. I believe, I mean, not living, you know, not like I'm going to go walk out into traffic or jump out of an airplane without a parachute. Um, but I do believe that when it's your time to go, it's your time to go. Um, combat is a unique thing because you will be in situations where a bomb could go off and everyone could be killed around you and you were standing in the same blast radius and you don't have a scratch. Those are hard things to wrap your head around because now you're like, why did I survive? Um, I think about that frequently for my injuries. I mean, this is my skull. I mean, this is, I was all shot up. I have a lot of friends who are no longer here. And I often think about why am I still here and they are not? But the reality is you can't answer those questions. You know, if you believe in a higher deity, I, I personally believe God gave me a second chance. And I personally believe it's up to me to live greatly as best I can to be the best version of myself in honor of the guys who are no longer here. So one, you have to accept the reality that people die. Every single moment of the day, there are people dying on this planet. It's an unfortunate part of being human. The flip side of the coin is there are a lot of people who stop living just because somebody they know or love died. And I disagree with that. Like you should be doing everything you can to continue to be the best version of yourself uh, in spite of that. And with teammates, I mean, I feel like that's what we owe them. The ones that we lost, 
um, or even a loved one that you've lost, how do you be the best version of yourself? Because I can tell you what, there's not a single teammate of mine who no longer is here who wishes that I moped and, and didn't do anything or, you know, all I did was sat around and drink and felt sorry for the fact that they're no longer here. Um, I think what they would want to see is that you're honoring their memory by living great. If you could have back one moment and redo it, what would that be? I, um, <laughs> you know, what's a funny story. The one moment I, so believe it or not, I wouldn't change my leadership failure because, and that's the hardest journey I ever went through. I actually almost killed myself, but it made me into who I am today. I don't think I would change being wounded because that made me into who I am today. So here's the funniest story you're ever going to hear. A great regret in my life goes all the way back to when I was a young enlisted guy and we were in Peru and, um, and several of my teammates decided they were going to go see the pyramids at Machu Picchu. And I opted not to go because I decided I would rather stay and party later into the night because they were getting up very early. Uh, so if I could go back again, I'd change that. So someday I got to go see Machu Picchu because I often think about what a moron I was. Um, Young and dumb so, as the saying goes, right? Yeah. But for the big things in my life, I wouldn't change anything. And I often tell people that the hardships that you go through, grit and resiliency is not forged in easy moments. Your ability to be an effective leader, your ability to deal with adversity, your ability to find positivity in the face of negativity, you can't just manufacture. You can't just go buy a bottle and, you know, you know, pour it into you and be like, I've got my superpower now. So all those things have made me what I am. And when I go through hard times, it doesn't mean they don't suck. They suck for all of us. But I also know it's more experience that's building me to be better. So I wouldn't change a thing in my life you know, at least the hard points. What is the one trait that you see out in, you know, uh, for the civilian standpoint that makes those people successful, successful? What's, what's the one thing about them? Uh, I'll, I'll give you two because they're the two biggest things. And it's funny right now we're revamping my coaching program. And these are the two things that we talk about. Resilience is going to be one of the biggest ones. And if you talk to a lot of successful people, resilience is that biggest thing that uh, when everybody else told them to quit, they still believed and drove forward. Um, and the second thing is action. People who are successful take action. People who are not successful, they plan and they think and they wish and they want and they complain and they look at others and they compare themselves, but they or and it's sustained action over time because there are people who will take one step of action and then they encounter some adversity. So here's where resilience comes in. And then they're like, oh, my God, that's too hard. I don't want to do that anymore. So it's action upon action upon action. And it's constantly taking action steps. That's what leads to success. And the most successful people out there, you know, it's it's a combination of those two things, in my opinion. Muted. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's, um, that's definitely wise words there because, um, you know, people will, will you come across and 
the ones that that I've come across that have been successful, and they are definitely people of action, and they're they're extremely consistent. That's you know one of the things I like to read about is um, these elite athletes and kind of what they do. And I finally read about one who didn't kind of fall into what I would expect him to be, which is Bo Jackson. I just read the book on Bo Jackson. I'll link to it in the show notes. But but any other elite athlete you read about, they're always working. They're always grinding. They're always doing all this stuff. And, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, if I'm LeBron James and you gave me $90 million at 18 years old, I'm probably not going to be very good at basketball. <laughs> you know, I got $90 million. You can retire on that. Your kids can retire on that. I'm probably just going to coast through that contract, and that's going to be it. And it's But it's amazing to watch it. I was watching last night as a Celtics fan him play the Celtics. And it's amazing to watch at his age. He's my age. And it's like, man, he's still out there grinding, playing basketball. He's like a billionaire now. And so there's something about um, that resiliency and that action that you speak to that, that you can find in uh, greatness. And, and it's, it's something to be modeled. I, and, it, and it is, and it is, some of it isn't, excuse me. Some of it is innate. But I also think a lot of it is learned. So when we talk about my first lesson of leadership, back to lead yourself, structure, discipline, consistency, goal setting, goal accomplishment, you get, you like it and and you feel good about yourself because this is how you're living your life. So the more you do it, the more consistent you are in it. So if you were an individual that has done that your whole life, you will continue to do it. Um, you know, obviously until you reach some point, which, you know, that's where I'm at. I mean, I have, you know, another 10 years and hopefully at that point I, I plan on traveling the world and golfing and spending time with my family. But right now I'm grinding, man. You know, and there are a lot of people, um, who would say, oh, you have every excuse in the world. You know, you served our country, you were all shot up, you were injured, you know, this and that, you know, I, I have a pretty decent retirement, but no, like I still want to make a difference because I'm, I'm a grinder. It's what I do. No different than LeBron James, no different than, you know, Tom Brady's a great example, you know? Um, although I think Tom, anyways, I think Tom should have, should have finished on the absolute high note he that he could have. Yeah. But, uh, but man, I got to applaud him and I understand where he's at. He, all his whole life, he has grinded and he has been successful mm. and that's what he knows. So it's hard to turn that off. Um, it's, it's, it's much harder and takes time to turn it on. But once you get that machine going and it's running at high speed, ah, man, that's where successful people stay. Okay. So last question for me. Um, we, we talk about the the joke of the war room. So we have this show because I want to hear people from various perspectives and just kind of hear what they have to say about whatever the topic of the, you know, they're an SME in. Um, and that's easy in my spot because I'm a podcast host. And so I can ask people questions, um, what their answers are. Does it impact my life? Uh, it's just, it's just an interview show, but we know in the real world, um, that's not how things go, <laughs> right? So people who are people of action and are taking steps, um, whether it's family, whether it's business, whether it's life in general, you're going to come across people who are going to have a different opinion, equally strong as yours and a voice equally loud as yours. Um, how, did you guys work through those issues when maybe there was a conflict? Um, you know, you know, one guy wants to go this way, other guy wants to go that way, and the stakes are the highest. How did y'all handle that in a professional way that kept uh, respect and uh, allowed you to work together? You know, at some point, that's where 
there is a time and place to provide opinions and and we allow that open communication in uh in special operations forces specifically the seal teams but there is always a point in time because time is the biggest factor you're fighting against if we're talking about a firefight milliseconds matter so you know I don't need your opinion in the middle of that firefight. This is why we train to the highest level. Now, you may see something um, that I don't see. So if I say, this is what we're doing, and you say, Red, what about this? And I say, oh, man, you're right. Holy smokes, you're right. Let's make this change. Um, But at the end of the day, if we butt heads, then it becomes the leader. You know, I am the leader and you're going to do this. So, And sometimes leaders are hesitant to do that. And and you but at the end of the day, you have to do that. That is the credibility and the power that you have been given as a leader with a title or whatever that is. Now, you need to build that up, develop it. You got to build that respect. You got to build that credibility. You know, you got to have set the example where guys are willing to follow you. You know, you don't want to use that too often. But when those moments come where there's that conflict and you can't agree, it's at that point. This is what we're doing because I am the leader. And you may find out later you're wrong. <laughs> well, but. I mean, I think, I think though, to your point, um, you know, one thing that a previous company I was involved with, I would tell people is, listen, if you make the mistake and it's my fault, I can live with that because I'm going to take the chewing anyways. But if you make the mistake and you didn't listen to what we said, I got to get the chewing steel. I would rather get the chewing <laughs> for the mistakes that, that I told you to make than the ones I didn't make. And obviously the, the, the stakes aren't life or death, but, but that's, but that was kind of the, my, my, my mentality was, Hey, listen, if I tell you the wrong thing, I'm going to chew in. If you do the wrong thing, you didn't listen to me. I'm going to chew in. Let's at least, at least let me get chewed out for the things that I thought were right. Uh, rather than things that I thought were wrong, that you thought, you thought were right. And so, um, yeah, but you got to be willing to take the responsibility though. It's the key, right? So if you're going to say, Hey, you're going to do this, then you can't then say, well, Bob screwed this up. Well, no, no, Bob, Bob didn't screw it up. Bob did what you told him, told him to do. And so, um, and I think that's part of the problem with modern society is, a lot of people want people to do things, but then they don't want to take the responsibility for what they told them to do. Yes. Okay. Um, and that's one of the great things about the military is you, uh, when you are in that leadership position, you are ultimately responsible. So, you know, um, you, you, and the best leaders I ever saw, they allowed their people to make the right decisions and they were successful. They gave all the credit okay, to absolutely. their people. If their people made a decision and they were unsuccessful, they would take ownership of that decision and say, well, it's because I guided them to make that decision. Absolutely. Okay. So we are going to link to your books that you have out. You've got a couple. Uh, You also have a planner that's out now. Um, Link to your website. Anywhere else you want us to send people to? No, the website would be the best. I mean, if they're interested in social media, um, you know, I try to put out great content on leadership, teamwork. The overcome mindset. I don't talk. Uh, I don't talk politics because I think it's about as broken as a five thousand year old <laughs> machine. And uh, so, what I talk about is how do you become the best version of you? How do you lead yourself to success? Okay. Well, Jason, we will link to all of that in the show notes, which is at warroommedia.com. Thank you for your time today, Ryan. Thanks, man. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five-star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? Helps keep the show going. 
and ad-free. Thank you so much.